you know, they always say like your pilot should be something only you can write. But I think what I learned from writing a bunch of pilot samples and throwing them out and getting really frustrated is like, it doesn't have to be literally me. I can maybe look at this one part of my personality and put that into a character and then have her make decisions that I would never make. But she has to be so understandable and so clear that even if it's not the decision I would make, I know why she's making that decision and I feel for her for making that decision. Hello, welcome everyone to Straight Ahead, an animation podcast where we spotlight rising black, indigenous, and people of color who are the future voices of the animation industry. I am Raymond Ozalanda, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yuki Okamoto Wong, the other half of our whole host. Our guest this week is Roxy Simons. She is a black writer working as an executive story editor at Disney Channel. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm Roxy. I have uh, most of my experiences in kids uh, preschool animation. I'm a writer. And right now I'm working in live action over at Disney Channel. Yeah. And I got my start with the Sesame Street Writing Fellowship in 2018. And yeah, I've just been like freelancing and staffing on different projects since then. Super cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way we like to start off on Straight Ahead is by playing a fun little game called In Between. We're going to give you two similar choices, and you have to choose in between the two of them, and then let us know why. Okay. Okay. Cool, cool. (laughs) First question. Who would you rather deal with during playtime? Randall from Recess or Jason from Craig of the Creek? Hmm. I think I'll go the Recess route. Yeah? Yeah. Recess, I feel like I use as one of the main shows I watched as a child that just stuck with me and I love mm. I think I'm I, the way I'm answering this question it's more just like what which one like moved me yeah yeah <laughs> that's not a wrong answer that's fair nostalgia plays a factor but I don't know I just I just love that recess it has this extreme element to it where you know their little clubhouse is insanely huge and like swinging off the swings into the sky whatever there's like insane things that happen but it's still just day-to-day life of kids hanging out at school at recess um mm-hmm. I love that show, so I'll go the recess route. Oh, Craig of the Creek, though. Craig of the Creek's a good show. I love Craig of the Creek. Yeah. They're both great. They're yeah, both yeah, great. yeah. Both yeah. Great. I often think, like, Craig of the Creek is basically if they just took recess and put it in a creek. Yeah. Yeah. I think recess was one of the big inspirations, too. Mm-hmm. Also, like, extreme things happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just kind of, like, the imagination of kids. Yeah. I do like that, like, sort of romantic idea of, like, man, do you remember having recess and, like, doing all this stuff in, like, mm-hmm. 20 minutes and, yeah. you know, all of these these big things happening. And then, like, you go back and you're like, wow, this playground is really small. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just taking the small moments from your childhood and... Yeah, like I, my my grandmother's dining room table from when I was little, in my head, it's just like this massive, fit for a king, like huge mm-hmm. wooden table. And then when I go back, it's a very normal small kitchen table. And yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that to me is like a magical memory I have is like running around this table and being like, I'm going miles. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's so great. What about you, Yuki? What would you go with? I might go with the creek because I like just <laughs> I like the idea of just running into the forest <laughs> uh, for playtime. I uh, really liked playing in the dirt when I was a kid. Even on the playground, I'd be like, yeah, I'm just going to dig up some clay or whatever. Mm-hmm. So maybe I would go with the creek. It's big enough. I could run from him. Yeah. If we're talking about a bully. <laughs> no, yeah. Like Jason's annoying, but Randall's like is a snitch. Like I feel like Randall <laughs> would actively try to ruin my playtime. Jason would just try to like, you can't do that. I'm like, screw you, Jason. I'll do what I want. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to tell? 
but Randall will tell what was her name, Miss Finster? Finster. Yeah. Miss Finster, yeah, yeah. And then she would actually give me detention and stuff. And so I'm just like, I don't know if I want to deal with Randall. You'd find a way out of it. They always did. I guess so. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Reese is such a nostalgic show. I miss yeah. it. It's, it's really good. Yeah, totally. All right, let's move on to the next question. Which green hat wearing red haired hero would you rather fight alongside with? Peter Pan against Captain Hook or Robin Hood against Prince John? I honestly don't remember much of Robin Hood in this moment. Oh, really? Mm. Obviously, I watched it. I don't remember much aside from the poster. I guess (laughs) I I have to go Peter Pan. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's basically just Robin Hood. You know, you steal from the rich, give to the poor. Yeah, yeah, it's Robin Hood. (laughs) I just don't I don't remember like I'm not having like specific scenes come to mind from that one. I don't remember that villain, too. He was like a whiny tiger. Oh, God. He's a lion. Yeah. Lion without the mane. I think he imprisoned his brother to take over the throne. But he was like pretty much a whiny baby. Yeah. He was a big baby. He wasn't that much of a really threatening villain, but he had the power. Yeah. Yeah. I think I loved it as a kid. I'm just it's not coming to me. So but Peter Pan, when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. I recognized that I was in the best time of my life. And I I was very (laughs) emotional on my birthdays. I had Peter Pan complex. I was like, I don't want to grow up. This is the time to be alive. This is as good <laughs> oh as it's going to get. It's a little sad, oh, but man. like I cried on my <laughs> eighth birthday because I was like, I'm getting old. It's all downhill from here. So I relate to Peter Pan it, oh or I did God. childhood be related to Peter Pan. <laughs> you would have been a lost boy or whatever. Yeah, I guess I wanted to be. That's so funny. Yeah, so Peter Pan, Captain Hook. Yeah, it's so funny. Like, oh no, I'm eight. Is that what yeah. you said? I don't know. And my mom is, you know, she's always very like, you have to enjoy every chapter of your life as a gift and as a child i was like no this is the only gift adulthood is a prison i don't know I just- <laughs> adulthood is a prison. i'm eight years old i'm about to go into the workforce like, yeah i don't like, i don't know why <laughs> oh my god that's so funny to me because i remember when i was younger i remember i was so excited when i finally hit double digits so like i'm 10 no that's so cool i i can like soon in one more year i would need more than my two hands to say how old i am not me. I was like, t- being a teenager, terrible. Being a child is all I need. I mean, being a child is probably the best. <laughs> mm. After I think after I became a teenager, I was like, wow, can't wait till I'm 60 so I don't have to like care anymore. Mm. <laughs> like when yeah. you're a child, you don't have to care. And when you get like really old, you also yeah. don't have to care. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Once you reach your golden years, that's when you might have that wonderment again. <laughs> or it won't feel imprisoned. Yeah, I won't feel trapped. <laughs> I like being an adult for just, I am very, I'm ha- really happy that I grew up. Now you do. Just, I don't know, at the time I really loved being a kid. Mm. Oh, yeah, being a kid was a lot of fun. Yeah, recess was a great time to play, playing outside with friends and stuff. Just mm-hmm. being able to like make friends so easily as a kid too. Yeah. Being yeah. taken care of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't know how good you have it. No. All my meals just placed in front of me. Yeah. I like being an adult as well. <laughs> There's a lot of fun things to being an adult. I think I would agree with you. I think I would also go Peter Pan. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Also, you'd be able to fly with Tinkerbell's uh, pixie dust. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. You can fly. Mm. Well, I'll go for the other side because then I could be a furry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You'd be a very handsome fox. I feel like that's not the first time you use that as a reasoning. It's an easy reasoning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it would be in uh, sad medieval times, but, you know, Mm. whatever. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, well, that was in between. Thanks so much for playing with us, Roxy. Yeah, of course. Yeah, hopefully you had some fun there. If you enjoyed today's in between questions, let us know your responses. Or if you have any suggestions for future in between questions, contact us on social media. So without further ado, let's jump into this. What is the day-to-day of an executive story editor at Disney Channel? So I'm on a live action show now and an executive story editor is basically just, you know, a lower level writer. So Hmm. there's staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, uh, producer, co-producer, executive producer. I think I did that correctly. So, you know, there are a lot more levels than in an animation writing room. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm just I'm just a writer still, <laughs> which I love. Yeah, I've I've been a staff writer on two other shows. And uh, so this is my third room. And, you know, I'm just in the room with the other writers, breaking story, pitching, punching up, just just brainstorming all day, really. And then if I'm off writing a script, then I don't go to the writer's room for the week and or, or if I'm on outline or whatever. And I'm just, you know, in my own little vacuum writing, working on a script that, you know, we all broke the story together and now I'm just working on it by myself. Yeah, so this is my first time being an executive story editor, but it's the same. It's basically the same thing. I love it. Yeah, Mm. I really like, I'm really enjoying it. As an editor, I mean, as far as I understand, you aren't reviewing other people's writing? Like there are like writers under you or anything? No, no, no. I'm just, yeah, we're all writers in the room. It's just for live action, they have title bumps and pay bumps. I'm sure, Uh. you know, this will play into the current animation negotiations. In in an animated room, in my experience, you maybe have a script coordinator or a writer's assistant and then you have staff writers. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, in my experience, it's been like three staff writers. It can be less than that. And then you know, a story editor is a leader in the room. Like, yeah, there's somebody who is reading everybody's scripts. And then it goes to the showrunner or the EP or the head writer. But no, I'm not reviewing people. I mean, we all read each other's scripts. We all mm-hmm. comment on each other's scripts. We're all helping punch up the jokes and pitching on each other's scripts. But I'm not in animation, a story editor. Yeah, again, is a leadership yeah, role. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're a boss in the room. Mm-hmm. But in live action, it's not. I, yeah, it's, it's just another writing position. Interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. 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 Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Your cat's joined the podcast. Yep, there she is. She's part of it now. <laughs> so what's the show that you're actually currently on right now? Oh, yeah. I'm on Bunked on Disney Channel. It's Bunked, colon, Learning the Ropes. So it's season six of the show Bunked. Wow. And they're doing a refresh on, you know, it's this camp show. And for the first five seasons, they were in Maine. And now they're in a new location. They're in, they're in Wyoming. And uh, yeah, it hasn't premiered yet or anything. I've been on it since October and I love it a lot it's my first big kids show most of my experience is in preschool and specifically Mm. preschool animation Mm -hmm. or or preschool bridge Um, I've done a few 6 to 11 freelance scripts but this is really my first yeah big kids show it's it's fun there's just a, a wider variety of stories that you can tell I think in in older kids like I I loved preschool you know I loved I don't know like I remember watching TV as a preschool and mm-hmm. the, the things I learned and I was so excited to be part of that. And this has just kind of mm-hmm. been a new challenge is writing big kids. Totally. I'm assuming like with a lot of preschool shows, there's more like, I guess, I don't know if efforts the right word, but there's more attention to making sure that there's like 
a wholesome message I get across through the story for like a preschooler. Is that not as true when writing for like a big kid show where they're just like, oh, yeah, like be nice to others, mm-hmm. treat those like how you want to be treated. It's like more prevalent in a, in a preschool show versus like a big kid show like Bunked. There are still themes in every episode. So another difference that Bunked is a multicam. So there's usually three stories, an A story, a B story, a C story, Mm. not in every episode, but typically. And within each story, there might be its own theme. Mm -hmm. So there might be three themes in an episode or it might be two of the stories are really thematic and there's a really strong lesson. And the third story is maybe just a kind of a fun sea runner with not a very specific learn. Mm -hmm. You know, I've only been on the show for a few months now, but I think for the most part, it's three stories with strong themes. And of course, yeah, that's the same with preschool. Preschool, you know, the first show I wrote for is called Madagascar Little Wild. Now on Hulu. That one is half an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it would be an A story and maybe like a runner. But it wasn't three stories as much. So there would be one big theme per episode that we're focusing on. And then a lot of preschool is also 11 minute. So for an 11 minute episode, definitely it'll just be one strong theme. So I guess the biggest difference, you know, for this show versus my last shows is there could be three separate lessons per episode. Mm. It makes sense. But yeah, I think as far as, you know, big kids and I, not every 6 to 11 show, it's not a requirement, I think, for there to be themes. But for the most part, I think even big kids shows have a, a learn. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So can you actually tell us how you first kind of got your start writing professionally? Yeah, yeah. So I, I joined a sketch comedy troupe in college my senior year. And that's when I realized I enjoy, you know, writing something and then someone performs it and it makes people laugh. And <laughs> so that was this group called pineapple-shaped lamps in North Carolina. And that really opened my eyes and through that kind of writing. And then I moved to New York after college and I was kind of just working odd jobs and wanting to be a TV writer, not really sure how to do that. Mm. So I would apply to a lot of fellowships where you just have to write maybe one original script or a spec script and these contests and programs. And one of the programs I applied for was the Sesame Street Writers Fellowship. So I applied in 2017. I didn't get in. I applied again in 2018 and I did get in. And that program completely changed my life. If you're a person of color, I highly recommend uh, who's interested in in writing and specifically preschool animation. It completely changed my life. So we had this amazing teacher, Susan Kim, and the project manager, uh, Sophie Solomon. The two of them were the two that I saw over the course of this eight-week program. And they just taught me everything that I knew at the time about preschool animation. From that program, I got a manager and then I got a development deal for the pilot that I wrote during the program called Danny Boy. And it also led to my first freelance script on Vampirina and Disney Junior. Mm. And then from there, I was just, you know, the program, they really set you up for success. At the end, they host this party, which they do virtually now. And they invite people in kids TV to come and just network with you because, you know, we want jobs and people want to hire us. It, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. And so that party, you know, I was we were handing out our business cards that we printed for the first time. And and also they, they accept, you know, <laughs> writers from all walks of life. Some people, they were just out of college and just starting out. Some people had had other careers and now we're pivoting to kids TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from at that networking party, I just met a bunch of people. Yeah. That led to me meeting my boss uh, in LA on Madagascar a little wild. So then I moved to LA in 2019 to be a staff writer on that show, which is just an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. I'm very close to everybody in that room still. Yeah, that was just uh, yeah my first job in LA. So yeah, I was on MAD for two years. That ended at the beginning of 2021. And then I was on this amazing preschool show called Helpsters, 
So that's with Sesame Workshop and it's a, a puppet show and so funny. I, like that was an amazing. So that was five months. That was all virtual. And now I'm on and I'm unbunked. That's so awesome. Wow. What an amazing journey. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. I, I was kind of just bopping around New York, like working random jobs, yeah. like just applying to stuff. Mm-hmm. And that that's the one that that really stuck. I'm curious, did you go to New York because you wanted like a job there or is that like a better place for writers or did you just not want to go to Los Angeles? Yeah. Yeah. Why New York over L.A.? Because I figured like a lot of the industry is in L.A. I feel like New York is more theater and Broadway. Yeah. Well, New York also has like television stuff. Yeah, not as much. You're right. Totally. You know, I did some off Broadway, like random PA jobs there, but I don't. I just always wanted to live in New York. It was just a dream of mine. Like since I was a kid, I just loved I, we visited a couple of times when I was a child and it just blew my mind. And I mm-hmm. loved living there. I was only there for, for a little under three years. I thought I would live there much longer. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to. Yeah, I, I had a mentor in college and I was like, yeah, I want to write for TV. Should I go to LA or New York? And I remember him just like bashing on LA and being like, go to New York. That's, <laughs> that's where you'll find true blue people is in New York. Like, I don't know. I, I just... If you I just, really want to be a writer, you got to go to New York. Oh I, I mean, actually, LA, obviously, there's much more work in LA. And now that things are virtual, it's not definitely not as important. But mm-hmm. I think if there are a handful of shows to write for in New York, there are so many shows to write for in LA, like you haven't even heard of most of them. Like there's just so much more opportunity. And again, now that things are virtual, I think it's it's different. You don't necessarily at the moment need to be in LA to be a writer. But um, right. anyway, yeah, I just wanted to work there. I, I would apply for late night assistant jobs because there's a lot of late night TV that's based in New York. But mm-hmm. yeah, I just, it was just, it was a dream of mine. And probably if I'd come to LA, I, I don't know, my path is my path, but maybe things would have been a little bit more streamlined, but I'm really happy with the way things worked out. And the Sesame program is based in New York. I believe they're still doing the program virtually, which is great. Mm. It just opens the opportunity up to more people. But yeah, I'm, I love LA now. I'm very happy here too. Oh, That's so great. And something I'm kind of curious about as well is like you were mentioning when you were talking about the Sesame Workshop, uh, the fellowship is that you actually were able to receive some kind of development deal with Sesame Workshop on your original pilot, Danny Boy. How did that go? Was that something that I only got as far as development. Is that something that kind of became something else? Yeah, that only got as far as development. So mm-hmm. I was paid for my work, which was great to develop it for, I think it was about a year that we were working on it and it just wasn't the right fit. And I still love that project and mm-hmm. I'm very proud of it. I still use it as a sample for animation work. That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was nice to, I don't know, yeah, to work on something of my own for a while. And everybody at Sesame was so just clear and honest with their notes but also very helpful and it, it felt very collaborative mm. but yeah that that just that didn't get as far as any further than being developed mm. yeah i think that's something that should be commented as on as well as that like kind of you were mentioning earlier like, there's so many things you haven't even heard of that's being written for and like for people that are interested in entering like you know animation or like you know even like live action there's so many stuff that never sees the light of day yeah. on both sides just because mm-hmm. things reach development and they just end up in what's called development hell yeah. it just doesn't yeah. just never leaves yeah so it's crazy well i don't think it's development hell when it's like limbo and you're not sure at least for me i did get like a clear like we're, we're not gonna move forward with this and i was like great i can mm-hmm. like emotionally let this go for now and maybe someday i can do something with it but yeah, I do. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think development hell is more like when, OK, we're not able to find the best writing for this. Let's shelve it for a bit. Shelving, yeah, shelving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's write it again. Damn, it's not working. Shelve it again. It's like yeah. they keep wanting to make it work, but yeah. nothing's working. But they keep yeah. bringing it back after a certain period of time. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that was a good attitude to have that. Like, you know, it went through development. And I think a lot of people 
kind of put their eggs in a basket of like, I'm going to make this show. And like, mm. once it gets off the ground, like, you know, I'm going to have my own show and like, that's going to be... Sky's the limit, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know, like, that's a really big goal mm. for them. But like, that's very typical that like many shows go through the development and just like, don't go anywhere. Like yeah. an executive just doesn't want to pick it up at the time or, mm. you know, stuff like that. And it, it, it is upsetting, but like, you have to let it go at some point. It's disappointing, but I do think while you're working on it, I mm. was thinking like, yeah, I'm going to be a showrunner on this. And like, yeah, I love this project and I'm very passionate about it because otherwise you're doing development on your own time. You know, it's like freelance mm -hmm. work. And I think if you're not passionate about what you're doing, if you're not imagining like, yeah, this is going to be my baby. And yeah, yeah, it's maybe hard to stay, you know, but but once it was time to let it go. And also it's not like it wasn't a huge surprise as we, we kept going along. I was like, oh, I can feel that maybe this isn't working the way the way mm -hmm. we thought it would. So mm -hmm. it wasn't a huge shock. But yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but it also like doesn't determine the success that your career could have if the show doesn't end, go past development. Yeah, like you've yeah. had a very great career beyond that, mm -hmm. which has been like amazing to see. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot from that process too. And also I just had never been paid to be a writer yet. Like that was just, mm. it, it was it was much later that they turned it down, but just to go through that process. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm glad I went through it. Yeah, it must have been a massive yeah. learning experience that you probably yeah. carried with you. Yeah. So something that I'm also kind of curious about is that you've dabbled between writing for like live action currently right now on Bunked and then writing for like animation early on in your career. How does it really differ, if any, between writing for those two different types of shows? Um, every show that I've staffed on has been very different. So Madagascar mm. was 3D animation. It was preschool bridge. Helpsters was preschool, but live action and a puppet show, like a completely different medium. Yeah. I got to learn how to write for puppets. And then Bunch Now is live action and big kids. I guess there there's always a learning curve because the product, the end result have been quite different, but the day-to-day -day is pretty much the same. I found whether it's animation or live action or a preschooler mm -hmm. or six to 11, where I'm in a room with people and we're brainstorming and we're trying to pitch on new stories. We're trying to see like, is there going to be an arc for the whole season sometimes there isn't mm. developing the characters and the day-to-day -day, i think is pretty similar i learned new skills on the different shows like i said writing for puppets and mm -hmm. just meeting with the puppeteers on helpsters that was so much fun and for bunked i'm trying to really sharpen my joke pitching skills and to you know open my mind and like if i like <laughs> when we're focusing on it like we focus more on like one joke at a time i think in bunks than i have in any of my other rooms of like really pitching on one joke until we get it right and i think that hasn't always been like my strongest suit in the past like pitching on the spot i like to have time to like think about it ahead of time um. and i'm trying to just get better at that mm -hmm. my experience has been pretty much the same of you know you're breaking a three-act story Oh, and another, another difference was Madagascar and Bunked are both half hour and Helpsters was 11 minutes. So that was another adjustment. Mm. But after the learning curve, it's just talking to people all day and try to come up with stories and trying to think of funny things that a kid is going to like and find relatable at the end of the day. What I'm going through the motions, it's all very similar. Mm -hmm. mm. I think that's one of the biggest frustrations with animation writers not being paid as much as live action writers because you're still doing the same job. You're still writing. Yeah, yeah. the same thing. Mm-hmm. For those that aren't in the know or where there's like massive negotiations going across the animation sphere, whether for the board artists, color designers and writers currently. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we all end up getting better pay for everybody that's like working animation because all the artists, writers have helped keep animation afloat during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Everybody has has their part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Animation never stopped during the pandemic. Like when I I was on Madagascar and, you know, we just shifted to working from home. We we didn't skip a beat. And I know a lot of live action shows had to be shut down for safety reasons. Mm -hmm. Animation was keeping everything afloat. And now that I can see firsthand that the jobs are the same, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. No, yeah, for for animation, at least on my show, our deadlines never changed. Yeah, yeah, the dead. No, we didn't get an extension. Just kept going back. It was just like, yeah, we were able to hit our deadlines, which is great. But like, the only thing that changed is that we started working from home. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious because you got sort of these opportunities through the Sesame Street workshop or fellowship, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. So you didn't do any like writing for puppets back then? No, the fellowship is the fellowship isn't about writing for the show Sesame Street. It's specifically mm. about bringing up writers of color. It's a diversity program. So you have to be oh, great. a person of color to get in um, and to apply or get to get an ed. They changed the number of people. I think my year, there were seven of us. Yeah, it's just specifically a program for people of color and just teaching you how to write for specifically preschool animation. Some people, they do write their pilot is 6 to 11, but the majority of, of fellows have a preschool sample, and it's just trying to diversify specifically the preschool animation space. So the fellowship isn't even, I mean, I'm sure their goal is for a lot of writers to come back and eventually do something for Sesame Workshop, right. mm-hmm. but uh-huh. they just want the space in general to be more diverse. So I asked awesome. after that, I went on and worked for DreamWorks. People went all over. Mm-hmm. And some of the fellows have eventually been able to write for the show Sesame Street. My understanding is that's not it's not a requirement. You know, it's not the main goal. Right. Like yeah. they just they just are trying to diversify the preschool animation space. And to just give writers the tools that they might not otherwise and the opportunities that they might not have had otherwise. It's really great. Yeah, huge it's opportunity. An, it's an amazing mm-hmm. program. There are so there are a lot of diversity fellowships and I just from talking to other writers and I don't know, I am biased, but I think this one is the best. Like they really, Mm -hmm. they're not guaranteeing you a job afterwards, but they're introducing you to people and they're giving you the tools and they're teaching you how to format and write and the general rules of preschool animation so that eventually once you know them well, you can break them yourself, but you know, getting the structure down, they're introducing you to managers and curriculum people. They bring in uh, showrunners and writers and animators to talk to us to give us lectures like it's a very all-encompassing program and definitely i think one of the best mm-hmm. that's wonderful i'm really happy like something like that exists i feel like at least in the animation space that's kind of starting but not really i know like latinx animation really partnered up with netflix to kind of have these like people of color inclusive programs to like fund a short film or something like that but there's mm-hmm. still not a lot of like in a similar vein to sesame workshop for like visual development artists or story mm-hmm. artists to kind of like specifically bring on people of color as trainees but mm-hmm. there's something to be like the program to fund stories and short films but not really in trainee positions at least mm-hmm. not that i've seen so far mm. yeah and you know i also have a network from that fellowship everybody all the fellows from my year mm-hmm. you know uh, a lot of us keep in touch and but then the previous years and the years after as well, we try to meet as we can. And yeah, it's just it's a great program. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend looking into it mm-hmm. if you are interested in being um, in preschool animation and in writing. Mm-hmm. One quick thing I kind of wanted to ask is like it's been like it's been like on my brain is that you mentioned that you had to kind of learn how to write for like puppets. Because mm-hmm. I remember we had a guest on here, Crystal Babbage. One of her first jobs, she was like boarding for like this kind of stop motion, uh, the stop motion show. Yeah. So mm-hmm. she couldn't cut as much as she would like. So she mm-hmm. had to learn how to work with a limited camera space and work within like a certain amount of camera cuts. Mm-hmm. That really kind of taught her like how to view things differently for that show. Mm-hmm. How is it writing 
for puppets? Like, what's the difference for like writing for puppets versus writing for, I guess, people? Gosh, what are some of the rules I learned? Okay, so the main thing I remember is, you know, in the action lines, you can't say like, Cody smiles fondly because it's like, they have their face. Like they have their, <laughs> they have, they have their expression. Yeah. Um, Open and closed mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, or the puppeteers gave us this little workshop. Like they sent us these googly eye rings mm. to put on our hands and to like practice just to see what they go through. Their arms. I mean, this is, they, their arms are just raised all day. Like it's a very physical job. They're doing mm. so much. They're not just their voice acting, but then they're moving their hands. I guess, mm-hmm. you know, something to keep in mind was the physical situations that they're in. Like I wrote an episode, like when you're writing an episode that maybe takes place outdoors, it's not in the studio. Mm. That Then those people and those puppets have to go out into the world and like sit in close quarters. I, I don't know. It was just, there's so much more to it than I ever knew. Yeah. Yeah. As far as like the stories we could all, for example, if you're there was one episode that's already out where Cody learns to ride a bike. And, you know, the, there are different kinds of puppets, but Cody, the character, the, the main character in Helpsters, she doesn't have like a lower half. She just has like the top of her body. So in order to show her riding a bike, they have to build a puppet that has a lower half, that has legs and feet and then like mm. rig it. And it's a huge undertaking to show the full body puppet version of Cody like riding a bike. Mm-hmm. So it's like those writers were like, this would be cute if Cody learned to ride a bike. And then to actually execute that is a huge thing. I think that's the whole, to me, what's so interesting about being writers. We're just in our room like, la-di-da, then they'll do this and this and this. <laughs> and then when it actually comes to making it happen, this is on every show, in animation and live action. Yeah. When it actually mm-hmm. comes to somebody making this happen, it's like, well, this is a huge deal. It's going to take this about, about of time. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really appreciated the puppeteers taking the time and to just show us what they're doing every day and that transparency between different departments within a show is always so helpful Mm -hmm. gosh i'm forgetting now like more specific rules for the writers but but that's what i remember is like yeah i need to stop Mm -hmm. saying something like describing someone's facial expression in the in the action lines (laughs) because that's not gonna happen Uh, so something i'm actually kind of curious about is like what is their typical writing process do you kind of like sit down and just like write or do you kind of jot down notes do you have like on this episode like there's these key lines i want this character to say or these key moments or do you kind of like work off some sort of outline like i'm just really curious your typical writing process when you're working on personal stuff or on a show like bunked so uh yeah my personal writing process definitely varies or you know it's quite different from on a show so with my personal writing process if i want a new pilot sample there's a lot of just brainstorming and thinking and taking notes and talking to friends, talking to writer friends, uh, just trying to figure out what the solid idea is, what the characters are. But I think, you know, with personal projects, what I start with is a character one-pager. So, you know, the main character, like the protagonist, some side characters, antagonist, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'll just really try to, because that's that's what I struggle with the most, I think, in my personal projects is a character and having a very clear protagonist is always challenging for me. So I try to nail that down as much as I can in the beginning. And I try to do these webs of like, how would the protagonist and this character interact? And how would these two interact? And how do her decisions differ from his decisions? Like, how would they react to things and just try to really get to know them Hmm. as if they were real people? I think I'm better at the plot side of it. So once I know where I want to end up and what I want themes to be, maybe that's a little bit simpler for me to beat out. And once I know the characters, so um, now I might do like a an outline. I should always outline. It's always helpful to outline. But when I'm doing personal <laughs> stuff, I get impatient. And I'm like, I just want to write this thing. And then it's always a mistake. And then I have to really do a lot of editing. But that's just part of my process is not 
re- mm-hmm. learning that lesson. So I might do like a light beat sheet, a light outline, but I get impatient and I want to just go to script. Mm-hmm. I also have managers. So now that I have managers, it's a lot of back and forth with them or just my, you know, my friends, my other writer friends or friends who want to be writers. I think having peers has writer peers has always been really important to me before I got my first job. I had other friends who also wanted to be writers and we just read each other's stuff and we were learning together. And so, uh, so yeah, so it's my managers or friends just getting notes from them. And just doing like a thousand drafts until it's just right. I'm currently working on a pilot just, you know, just to have as a sample. And it's been a long process. I'm a little sick of these people by now, but I do love the story and I'm like, I'm excited to get it down. And then as far as for work, there's a bit more structure, definitely. So when it comes to a show, somebody else's show, when I'm working full time, like for Madagascar, we would maybe like brainstorm a little bit together, come up with like maybe a log line or a paragraph. But the process really started with a one page premise that we'd send to the execs. It's a lot of back and forth with the execs. So you write a one page premise, you send it to the execs for approval. Mm. You write Mm. a 10 page outline, you send it to the execs for approval. You write the first draft, you send it to the execs for approval, you write the second draft and so forth. So for Madagascar, we would, yeah, we would be in the room for like a few hours and just be pitching on an outline, breaking the outline together and inserting jokes in there and just a fleshed out like what is going to happen beginning, middle and end. And then, you know, send that to the execs for approval. Once that comes back, then the writer goes off by themselves, whoever that one writer is, and writes the script by themselves and has a few days to write it, turn it back in, editing it together, you know, with the story editor or with the executive producer. And then, yeah, again, just like always going back to the execs for approval. And, you know, in my experience, I've had pretty much, yeah, all really great execs. Some of them have been really creative themselves, which is always helpful. But yeah, there's definitely a lot more structure when I... I'm writing for a job as opposed to just writing for myself. Yeah, I didn't realize like there was so much back and forth in that writing process of like these little kind of like these little steps from like premise to outline to first draft. Mm -hmm. It's insane to me. Mm -hmm. Well, you want the execs to be on board from the beginning. So you don't want to write a full script and then be like, we don't like the story. (laughs) So that totally makes sense. Yeah, you're pitching them from the beginning what the story is going to be. And sometimes, very rarely, it gets a very far along and then they maybe don't like the story for one reason or another and you kind of have to start mm-hmm. things over and then you're but for the most part it's it can be pretty smooth of like pitching them from the beginning what the beginning middle and end is going to be and as you go further along in the process you're learning more about what you're like in the outline you know much more about what the story was than when you were writing the premise mm-hmm. for work and and just in general a lot of writing is just talking and thinking <laughs> <laughs> So another thing I'm kind of also curious about, like if you could bring an end to like one misconception people might have about writers or being a writer, like what would that be? I don't know. What is a misconception people? What is a misconception you have about writers? I don't even know what. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm so immersed in kids writing in particular. Most of my friends are also kids writers that I really should widen my social circle and have some (laughs) friends who aren't writers, but they are mostly, you know, my younger sister, she's a teenager. When I was living at home a lot during COVID and she was home and she would just hear me, she's like, you don't do anything. Like you literally are just sitting and talking about fart jokes all day. Like she would overhear me (laughs) through the door. And I think to her, my job sounded very dumb and nothing like just truly sitting and like gossiping and talking. And she's not wrong. It's a lot of just talking about fart jokes all day. So I think specifically shout out to Jenna (laughs) my little sister yeah it's a lot of just like sitting and talking and joking around and making each other laugh but then you actually have to like sometimes to me it's still like shocking that my job is just sitting there 
and imagining like what could happen next and what do we want to see happen、mm-hmm. and then just deciding like it's like playing God a little bit. These characters are doing this and like you're just it's just like pulling things out of the air sometimes. But、uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't know many misconceptions, but specifically to my little sister, she thinks we just sit and make each other laugh all day, and it's like yeah, that is not、mm-hmm. incorrect. But <laughs> the actual like sometimes when we're trying to break a story. It can feel impossible. Like it's like we want this one thing to happen, but、right. it doesn't work because of this. And the,、mm-hmm. like just the other day, it's like we were pitching all day, and sometimes you have to talk for a really long time to either realize actually this other thing could work. This, we came to this other thing, or to realize the story doesn't work for the, the, these reasons. We have to start over, and that can be really frustrating to talk for a long time and and to brainstorm for. And even with my personal projects, like I can write many drafts of a script and then be like. Oh, this isn't working for really big reasons that I only see now that I have the whole script in front of me. Wow! And at first, I、right. it like sickened me to throw out pilot samples to like work so hard. <laughs> I was like furious about it. But now that I'm at a place where I'm working on a sample that got me the job I have now, and I'm still trying to edit it and refine it and make it, you know, as tight as it can be. It's like, well, those old drafts that I wrote that I threw out that I was so sad about wasting that time. You know, I learned from that. Whatever. <laughs> it led to here. <laughs> It led to where I am at this point with this sample, and it was all for a reason. I had to go through that in order to creatively be where I am now. You know, totally. Yeah. That no, that's a great answer. I guess the thing, like maybe it's not more of a misconception, but I guess it's like a cliche. It's like all writers tend to like write at Starbucks and stuff. Like, is that <laughs> how, how true? Do you find that? Oh, very. Most of my friends love coffee shop writing. I <laughs> love、so、to、funny. write. In bed, like fully, just lying down, <laughs> very bad for my posture. I love writing at home. I, I don't think that's the case for most of my writer friends. I don't know. I think, especially now that people are home all the time, it's very important for people to feel like they're getting out of their house and have like a, a designated writing space and home space.、Mm. I think before、mm-hmm. the pandemic, I don't know. Like one of my friends, Michael, I think he just feels more energized and more. You know, like it's something to look forward to. You go into your, a coffee shop you love, and you're getting a little coffee and a treat, and maybe you're meeting up with a friend there. And I think writers, yeah, they do love going places. They do love going to coffee shops, and and you know, anytime a friend invites me to go, I always love it. It's not like I hate, but I I love home. I love my bed. <laughs> I love to kill my posture. And for me, yeah, I'm more of a home writer.、Mm. So like wh- why why coffee shop instead of like a boba shop like what's what's what specifically <laughs> is it about coffee? Yeah, I guess it's. I'm also not a coffee drinker, so maybe that's where I'm missing out. But you know, <laughs> such just, a energizes you. I'm just, I'm just I'm just like following you like a. But no, just, okay. What is important? You have to find a place that has a good level of noise, but not too much noise. If it's too noisy, it's distracting. But if it's too quiet, it's painful. So it's like you, it's like you want the right ambiance. There have to be lots of outlets to plug in your laptop. There has to be free Wi-Fi. Like there are like, but again, it's not. I don't need that. I don't need to go to a a coffee shop. But I think, I think it can be helpful. Hmm.、Mm-hmm. Right, I I I can see that. I just yeah, just like one of the, the I guess cliches that you tend to hear about writers are a thing that you kind of、yeah. hear is like, oh, I wonder how how true is that. But cliches are born from. Truth. <laughs> so、mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like just thinking about it. I mean, writers.、Uh, you could probably correct me on this, but like when you're hired on as a writer, I don't think they usually give you like an office space. 
or maybe like you'll have the writer's room, but like after you guys are done doing the outline and stuff, you kind of have to like go home or go to your own place to kind of do it. I know like maybe for like a head staff writer, they have like an office there, or at least um, Jeff did on Craig of the Creek, but like I don't remember any other writers being there. Interesting. So some animated shows are only freelance, so there is no writing Mm. staff. They're just, there's just a showrunner or and a story editor, and then they have freelance writers that, yes, work from home. Mm. But in my experience, if you have a staff, Madagascar was the only job that I had in person. Everything else has been virtual. (laughs) The three, like the two writers and the, and the script coordinator who was eventually promoted to being a staff writer as well, the three of us shared a a beautiful corner office at the, the skyscraper in Glendale. Three of us shared an office and then the story editor had an office and the EP had an office. And sometimes we would write from home if we were on script, but for the most part we were coming in. And mm. But I think there needs to be a place, like a, an office space, if you're on staff for you to go. And But now, you know, everything is... I don't have an office now, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're looking at it. So you go to a coffee shop. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the majority of us had to convert like some part of our household to be like an office space. Yeah. Especially to have that, what you commented on earlier, to have that distinction of separation between mm-hmm. your personal life and your work life. Because mm-hmm. it's so helpful. That yeah. way you don't feel like you're trapped in a single room sometimes all day. Just having some sort of separation helps. That's something I'm also kind of generally curious about. It's like, how does your own kind of cultural background kind of influence your work as a writer? Because I know like when you are a writer, you get to work with a multitude of different characters, whether these are established characters or you're creating a character from thin air and kind of putting it in. Like, how does like, yeah, how does your own personal background play into like when you're writing stuff, whether it's, you know, your personal life experiences or your cultural experiences, like how does that play a role? I mean, I guess for work, every writer is hired to bring their own perspective to the show and to bring something that maybe the other writers don't have, like a room is supposed to be a well-rounded group of people with different opinions and everything. I I guess as far as personal projects, you know, for a a pilot sample, it's really important to uh, have a personal connection to that story. Hmm. I think that's why I've struggled so much with having like a solid pilot sample is I want to write something that, you know, they always say like your pilot should be something only you can write, which is so hard because it's like, well, (laughs) some shows out there, like a lot of people could have written. So I don't know. I think for a long time, I was really trying to you know, I was born in South Africa and I lived there till I was eight. And I was like, okay, I, I'm going to write this pilot about the South African family. And I was really trying to force it when it's more like the nuances of just being a person and the, the mm-hmm. tiny stories from throughout my life that other people find surprising that to me, I was like, oh yeah, this isn't actually something I, I didn't realize all kids went through. You know, it's, <laughs> I think for me, what I found is like, I guess just thinking about special moments from my life or if I'm writing a kid sample from my childhood and like, how can I make that universal and specific yet universal, you know? Mm-hmm. So Danny Boy, the sample I wrote during Sesame was about a boy. He's the only male soprano in his middle school chorus. And like I was in chorus in middle school and I have very distinct memories from that. And I remember all the, a, a lot of the boys had very high pitched voices. I can sing higher than the girls. And like mm-hmm. that changes when you get to high school and th- that felt very charming to me. And Or like my current like adult pilot that I'm working on is about like, it's like a really tough roommate situation that like, yeah, who hasn't had that, you know, but it's like, how could I make this like very specific to me? But I don't know, I'm still early on in my career. So I think I'll see, you know, as I get to maybe work more on personal projects, how my background influences my writing. But for now, I I just try to find something relatable and exciting in these specific experiences I've been through, like specific little stories from my life. Mm-hmm. Very well put. I think like, because yeah, for me, I think like writing just with art in general, like it's a very personal medium. 
but it's also really hard to be vulnerable in that space. And mm-hmm. I think with writing, especially, I feel like you could like rent out, out of thin air, but like, I feel like it is also one of the things where you're constantly, I had, I took like one screenwriting class, but like mm-hmm. my professor was constantly telling me like, write what you know, write what you know, like don't try to write this space epic. You're not there yet. Just write something mm-hmm. that you can personally relate to. And that's something like, yeah, basically you said like, what's something that you can write that no one else can write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things, like how much are you constantly putting a little bit of yourself into every script that you write? It's yeah. kind of like something, Mm-hmm. That yeah, in this medium is just something that's very very unique. Like in the entertainment space, is that it's, there's always a little bit part of you in something that you do. Yeah. But I think what I learned from writing a bunch of pilot samples and throwing them out and getting really frustrated <laughs> is like it doesn't have to be literally me and my exact yeah. family life. Like that's what I was really trying to do, mm-hmm. and it was too per- it was too much. I was I was like I can't look at myself like this objectively. I can maybe look at this one part of my personality and put that into a character. And then have her have all these other Mm. qualities that are nothing like me. But I was trying to make it exactly what my life is. And that's not, it's not very creative because that's not, I'm not using my (laughs) imagination. And so, I mean, obviously that's, there are some great projects out there. You can be like autobiographical. Yeah. yeah. That's not what you want. For me, for me, I was like, it just feels too close and it feels too raw. Almost the family experiences Mm -hmm. I was trying to write about, it didn't feel like I had enough distance to look at it objectively as an outsider and as Mm. like a reader almost. Yeah. But when... Like, there's weird conspiracy, like, death in the sample I'm working on now. I don't have experience in that, but it's, like, I can take a weird roommate situation and I can take, like, little parts of my personality, you know, when I was living in New York and, like, apply it to this character. But Mm. also take parts of her that, like, have her make decisions that I would never make. But she has to be so understandable and so clear that even if it's the decision, not the decision I would make, I know why she's making that decision and I feel for her for making that decision. Totally. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what, how I got in this tangent, but yeah, just it's, I, I think I'm still learning basically like how, who I am as a person influences my writing and mm-hmm. like what kind of stories I want to tell. But like, for example, I, I did try to write this sample about like, I was a PA for like an off, a tiny off Broadway play in New York. It's like, I did it for a few months and I was done with it. And it's like, it's almost like reaching back into my own past and being like, what is kind of interesting that I haven't even realized is interesting and it's like mm. working on a tiny this play in New York when surrounded by like these huge Broadway plays like that. When I now that I have distance from that, I can look at that and be like, I think this could actually be a story right. uh, that I would enjoy telling. Mm-hmm. I ended up throwing that pilot away, but someday I want to go back to it. <laughs> <laughs> Shelved it. <laughs> uh, that's very cool. Before we get into our final question, where can our audience find you? And is there anything else you want to promote, Roxy? Yeah. I'm not a super big poster, but I am a big lurker on social media. So I'm <laughs> at Roxy Simons 26 on Twitter and Instagram. Again, not a super interesting page, but that's what it is. And then something I'd like to promote, I wrote for these shorts on Disney Junior called Rise Up, Sing Out. That just came out a couple of weeks ago. And they are eight anti-racism, but like uplifting, joyful shorts for preschoolers. They're only about two minutes long. I wrote one of them. I wrote episode three, I think. It's called uh, Speak Up. And I love them so much. It's beautiful animation. And it's basically just showing preschoolers some of the tough things, the tough aspects of racism, being a person of color, specifically being a black child, but then like the joyful parts about being a black child. There's a song all about how great it is to wear a bonnet at night or like to have a unique name. Like it just makes me so Mm. happy. My episode is about microaggressions, which I was so anxious would be. That's like a, yeah. a, a really big thing to talk about to a preschooler. But yeah. 
I think, you know, it was very, also very collaborative. I think it came out really well. And mm. Questlove and Black Thought wrote the music to the song. So like the writers, we like brainstormed, we partnered with The Conscious Kid and we wrote the outlines for these eight shorts. And then Questlove and Black Thought made these amazing songs out of our outlines. So I'm really proud of that. And that is on Disney Plus and Disney Junior and Disney Channel. That's awesome. I've been seeing a lot of the artwork for that and it looks really, really cute. Yeah. Also, why didn't you tell us this before that you're working? I would have loved to have talked more about this. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, well, I will say it was such a quick process for me. Like it was last year, I was living with my parents. It was like one uh. day we met with the conscious kid and mm-hmm. they they gave us a presentation on race in young children. It was so interesting and mm. sad and just mm-hmm. relatable. And then, then, right. then over the next like two days, maybe... We just all like a couple of us brainstormed together. We decided what we were going to do. And then we went off and wrote these outlines that were like one page. It was such a short process. And Mm. now like the outcome is so beautiful. I'm really proud of it. But that was a freelance project. That wasn't a a full-time job or anything. It was just, you know, Mm -hmm. I think I took a couple of days off work or maybe I wasn't, I didn't have a full-time job at the time, but Mm -hmm. it was just like a quick freelance process. And it's still wild to me how I can like work on something for a very short amount of time and almost forget that I did it. And then when it comes out, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. That's the thing with animation. It's like, it's like so like a year later plus it comes out. You're like, oh my goodness, I'm so proud of this thing I did and barely remembered. Yeah, that one, I'm very proud of the way those turned out. Oh, that's awesome. Yes, mm-hmm. please. Everybody check that out. Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. So as we come to a close, do you have any final advice that you want to bestow on those that want to pursue a career in writing? Yeah. Um, again, I'm still at the beginning stages of my career. I think something I was surprised to learn, you know, after my first job ended was, I guess, the hustle of being a writer never ends. Like mm-hmm. once one job ends, I'm just unemployed and then have to seek out a new job. And my parents can't wrap their minds around that. Just like you continually have to be writing your own stuff and writing samples and meeting people and networking and trying to get better and finding the next job and getting staffed again. But I think something that I'm really glad I did early on, uh, I think I said this earlier, was having a group of peers around me, people who also aspired to be writers around me. And we just could uplift each other. We could form writers groups. We could send each other links to fellowships and contests to apply to Mm. and just come up together. And now, you know, we're all, it feels like we've made our dreams come true and it's a really beautiful thing to see. But I think even in college and in high school to just find other people, like-minded people who also want to do the things that you want to do. And I think just also early on for me, having teachers who, when I told them I wanted to be a TV writer, they were like, oh yeah, you, yeah, you'll do that. Like to people who believed that I could do it. Um, (laughs) To just, I think, just surrounding yourself with people who believe in you and and maybe want to do something similar and you can just help, you know, help each other. You're going to be hiring each other someday. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. If you audience member enjoyed our interview with Roxy, please rate and follow us on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. We're officially on Apple Pods and Spotify also has like a rating system. So please leave us a review. It'll super help us boost us in the algorithm. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at StraightAheadAP. Big thanks to June Chung for suggesting Roxy as a guest. If you have any suggestions for future guests, please contact us on social media or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. We love discovering new professionals and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. Special thanks to Edgar Ariano for editing this episode. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier. Thanks again for listening. 
And thank you once again to our guest who has a bright future straight ahead. Until next week, have a wonderful day. Bye, everyone. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye.